Okay, um, this afternoon I'm going to continue the series we started last week from the book of Philippians. We're studying the book of Philippians throughout the the fast. And we started with uh, verse 1. No, (laughs) chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I said uh, last week that if we were to ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, can you sum up the purpose of your life or the reason or goal of life that he would be able to do it in this phrase, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, this verse in your Bible should be underlined and highlighted because really it is what boiled down to his purest essence encompasses Paul's doctrine about life and death. Now, last week I spoke about the first half of the verse, which was for me to live as Christ. And this week I'm going to talk about the second half and to die as King. Now, I am absolutely certain that the vast majority of Christians living today have never really considered what Paul meant by that phrase, for me to die is gain. Although we may not understand the Christian perspective, we've been exposed to a lot of books, movies, TV shows that depict the life after death in non-biblical ways. In this uh, movie, When Dreams May Come, have any of you seen this movie? Okay, good. Robin Williams, Cuba Gotting, describes the afterlife in the following. I'm just going to read um, the description they have here in the jacket. After Chris Nelson Williams dies in an accident, he tries to remain close to his beautiful mortal wife, Annie. With the friendly spirit, um, Gooding Jr., assigned to guide him, he begins to adapt to his new state of being in a setting that can only be described as heavenly. But when his distraught wife takes her own life, she is banished to eternal damnation. Chris vows to find her so he can share eternity together. But no one has ever succeeded in rescuing a soul from such a horrid fate. Oh, really? (laughs) With the help of some of of his heavenly friends, Chris sets out on the most perilous and harrowing journey of his life or afterlife a quest for everlasting love that will take him to hell and back. Now, the weird thing is, is that I will sometimes find folks quoting movies as their basis for their doctrine or beliefs about afterlife. At the heart of the gospel, though, what Christians uniquely have to offer has, um, compared to our entertainment culture, gives us great hope. The shattering message of he is risen, Christ is risen from the dead, is hardly ever mentioned in church anymore except on Easter's. Yet this is the bottom line message for the early Christians. They had the good news. Death was dying because Jesus lives. Now we've reached an extraordinary um, place in American Christianity today in which many Christians are unsure about what the Christian understanding of death is. Now I grew up hearing from my mother about her death experience. I was the last of her six children. And things did not go well at the hospital birth. The doctors thought that I was going to die. So they brought the priest in to come and give me and my mother both our last rites. Now this is how I remember my mother telling me her story. I was under so much pain, I just wanted to die. I remember closing my eyes and hearing the nurses say, It's better this way. She suffers so much. Finally, her suffering has stopped. The nurses covered me with the hospital sheet. I suddenly felt my body lifting from the bed. 
I looked at the nurses and they acted as if I was just lying there on the hospital bed. And then I saw someone at the foot of my, feet, my bed. His eyes were full of eye, love. I recognized that it was Jesus. I knew it was Jesus because of the love I felt from him. I wanted to go with him. I didn't care that I was leaving behind six children and one newborn baby. Everything within me wanted to be with him. His love overwhelmed me. And then suddenly I saw him move his hands down. He never spoke a word, but I knew he was telling me, It isn't time yet. I wanted to go with him. I pleaded. And then he disappeared. When he left, I felt my spirit return to my body. I had been healed and had come back to life. Now, my mother today is a lovely Christian woman. But even, and you know, I'm 51 tomorrow. So she obviously lived a long life and continues to live a long life since that uh, death experience. But even with an encounter like that, she did not become a Christian till 20 years later when she was on a missionary trip with us as an interpreter for one of our teams. Now, in Steve Strogren's book, The Day I Died, and he's a vineyard pastor, he shares his story this way. And I just want to read um, a little bit from it. Three, two, one. The count wrapped on. But I was not counting. The surgeon made the first three incisions laterally along my rib cage to create the opening through which he would later insert a piece of surgical equipment. A fourth incision was made just below my belly button. This opening was to be the space through which the surgeon would insert an instrument so that he could cut a hole, if necessary, removing my gallbladder. However, when the surgeon began to make the fourth incision, as I understand it, the surgeon positioned the instru instrument at an odd angle, something other than the standard protocol of 90 degrees. He then triggered the instrument to fire. However, Instead of making a one-inch incision to part my stomach muscles, the cutting device ripped a three to four-inch gash into my midsection. The razor-sharp instrument tore through my intestines, bowels, and worst of all, right through my aorta. It then st stuck like a dagger into my spine, severing a number of nerve bundles. Now, anyone who's passed ninth grade biology knows that the aorta takes all of the blood pumped by the heart and transports it to the vital areas of the body. You can imagine what happened to me when my aorta had two holes in it. Blood squirted from it like a fountain. My blood pressure immediately dropped. Although I was bleeding, the surgeon did not realize it. He was surprised and perplexed why my blood pressure began to crash. He saw no sign of bleeding when he looked into the front stomach cavity. Gravity was causing the blood to drain out of my veins and into the hollow of my back. By this time, I was looking up toward the ceiling. I could see light, and I could hear a different voice, the voice of God. He was speaking out loud. Yes, his words were audible. I knew intuitively that God was the one who was addressing me. It was like a voice of a hundred friends talking in harmonious unison. It was a voice that was familiar and comforting and drew me near. It was safe. Yet at the same time, it was also the earth-shaking voice that I imagine Moses must have heard coming from the burning bush in the desert several thousand years ago. 
God had spoken at a time when Moses desperately needed hope and direction. I'm no Moses, but I can see now how much I needed to hear from God at that moment in the hospital, operating room in suburban Cincinnati. In all my years of seeking God, I had never before heard him speak audibly, nor have I since. In fact, I'd never met a person who had heard God talk out loud. This kind of communication is very unusual. Maybe it is something that God does only in emergencies. So that when I first heard God's voice, I was alarmed until I listened to what he had to say. Don't be afraid. You have nothing to fear. It's going to be okay. I wasn't exactly afraid. I was more amazed at what was going on in the room. It was like those movies from the 1970s that show a person on an acid trip. <laughs> His heart died for, um, stopped for seven minutes. If you want to hear the more of the story of Steve Trogren, I would recommend this book. It's really cool. Okay, we have other people's stories, some Christians, some non-Christians. But what does the Bible have to say about death? If we're going to really impact this culture, I believe we need to begin where the early Christians began. By recapturing death as one place that the Christian message is vastly superior to all other messages. We need to have a good Christian understanding of death. And it is here that the good news of Christianity has its greatest power. Now a large portion of our culture has left behind Christian beliefs. Many have taken what some people refer to as a postmodern era belief, where there's a p new paradigm. You believe what you like, and I believe what I like. Now sometimes Randy and I on our dates will go to the bookstore and like to read books together. And I've noticed that many of the bestsellers are about, about death are written by New Age perspective. How are we as Christians going to talk to our friends and our neighbor about a very relevant topic? Let's pray. Father, I just um, pray for you to comfort um, us where we have been harmed or saddened by loss and death. And Lord, you would comfort us by giving us um, substance to this topic, Lord, that gives us hope, that gives us faith, and gives us assurance. And Lord, I pray you would just help um, this message today to change us Lord and empower us Father to make a difference where we work and where we live and where we play and Holy Spirit I invite you to come and bless us now in your precious name Amen now there are two main responses to the question of death offered by the larger culture I think the first one is acceptance of death and the second avoidance of the discussion of death now regarding the acceptance of death there's a lot of popular literature regarding near-death experiences Folks who experience a blinding light being taken down through a tunnel into a wonderful presence of light. It's all very interesting. It is curious, though, that one of the titles is entitled Blinded by the Light. It is suggested that the loss of consciousness may cause a person to feel like they're floating or going through a tunnel or feel like they're surrounded by a light, a great light. I don't know if it's physiological or spiritual. But when people begin to conclude that because of these experiences there is no resurrection, that there is no judgment, only light when we die, 
when the light is a byproduct of losing consciousness or whether it's a trick of Satan, I don't know. But to believe that there is no life after death or no, no resurrection is not what the scripture teaches. These ideas are nothing new. Actually, um, in the first, second century, there was this kind of belief. And Paul addressed this um, back in, this, in those days. They call it Gnostic. In the pre-Gnostic um, belief, when Paul was writing, he was addressing 2,000 years ago. He tells us in such teaching that these are doctrines of demons. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 the following. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And then he goes on to tell us, of first importance, Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day and he reappeared. Now besides the new age acceptance that we float off into a light or no need for resurrection of the body, there's another kind of acceptance that's very popular which is based on naturalism. Now there's many books written today for parents giving them advice regarding on how to talk to children about death. They suggest to parents that they sit down and talk with their kids and tell them that death is natural. Death, the death of their father, their grandfather, their brother, their playmate. It's just natural changes that people go through. Therefore, death should be accepted. Now, I read a story about a mom who bought into the naturalistic approach, and she had just read one of those books and was ready to explain it to one of her children because the child had recently lost a little cousin. So the mother sat down and began to tell her, your cousin's gone to the, be in the earth, which is where we all came from. All of nature is a cycle, and death is a natural part of that cycle. When you see the flowers come up next spring, you will know that your cousin is fertilizing the flowers. The mother was shocked when her child ran off screaming, I don't want Billy to become fertilizer. <laughs> now, <laughs> none of the recent myths offer much comfort to that child. Children know simply to tell them that death is a natural part of the life cycle isn't enough. Or to tell them that we go off into a tunnel into the light. That's not good enough to overcome the fear of death. Now I'd like us to see this video clip. Now you know all about me. No more mysteries. Look, I'm really sorry. Shut up. Don't be pathetic. I wonder if he takes advance orders. For what? For my place. You know, there. What do you think it's going to be like? 
Butterflies. Lots of butterflies. Do you know God? Paints every color on a butterfly with his fingers. I didn't know you thought about stuff like that. I think about time. There's something basically unfair about a person dying. You even need the idea. You know, I, um, I don't know much about God or, or Jesus. But I can promise you that those arms are meant for you. Now, some adults have not bought into the modern myth regarding death and have decided that it's better not to talk about it at all. So we're just going to avoid this subject. Sweetheart, let's not talk about the will. We're going to be together forever. It's so interesting to look around the course of human history how differently the ancient culture thought about death. If you looked at Egypt, Greece, India, Africa, people had an overwhelming preoccupation for the provision and the preparation of death. People lived in a clear sense that one day they were going to die, and therefore they took a lot of time and energy to prepare for death, not for retirement. Have you ever noticed walking around a museum where they dug up all that stuff? Most of the things they have dug up, most of the art and most of the culture is funeral art. You know, supposedly the oldest book that we have ever been written or found is Etruscan, a language that is no longer used. But we can see this book in the Bulgarian Museum in the, of History in Sofia. Now the rarity consists of six pages made of 24 karat gold fastened together. Now this small book was discovered about 70 years ago in an old tomb with frescoes and was most likely placed there as provision for the afterlife. Now the attitude today is exactly the opposite. More people are preparing for retirement than preparing for the afterlife. Now the ultimate for some people would be to die without ever having to think about it. Whereas ancient people spent years planning for the provision of death. Today what is said, you know, if I'm going to die, I would rather die instantly. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to prolong it. Just take me out. Now as Christians, we have the capacity to have great impact in the lives of the people around us. And I believe more so in this time in this, than even the first century that the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can have a greater impact today. This is such an opportune time for Christians to bring hope to our community. So what is the Christian understanding of death? Well, certainly not New Age, which is really an old Gnostic message. It's certainly not an acceptance of death and that we all become fertilizer. And it's certainly not the modern acceptance of death where we try to avoid the discussion in its entirety. The Christian understanding of death begins with the answer to the question, why death at all? You stand at the grave of a loved one. You read in the newspaper regarding a young mother walking her baby and being killed by a drunk driver that jumped the curve. And the question comes to your mind, why death? Rather than thinking death is a part of life, 
or we need to stop thinking about it, Christians say that death was never a part of the plan of God in creation. Death is radically unnatural. It is not a natural part of life. It's the sign of our culture's degeneration. In the Bible, we clearly see that the death is the most unnatural part of creation. It was never intended by God to be part of this world. Death in the Bible is a judgment on sin. In Romans 6.23, it says, The wages of sin is death. Now, our first parents lived in disobedience to God. They were told by God not to um, eat from the tree of good and evil. By issuing just one good commandment, God sets limits to protect us. There is a fundamental distinction between creator and creature. The fundamental distinction, distinction has to do with our limits. Our first parents were tempted by Satan to want to be like God and to be unlimited. And as a consequence to their disobedience, we find and they have found that they have limits, death. Even today, we still live in this intense sense that we ought to be like God, unlimited, free, no subject to anybody or anything, not subject to anybody or anything, the captain of our own ship, the master of our own destiny. In fact, you can measure how subject you are to God and his commands by how well you deal with limits, whether from authorities or circumstances. Most of us do very badly. The fact that we want to be free completely shows us how much we are in rebellion in this area of subject to God. Aren't most of us staggering at the thought that we have limits? We wake up one day and our body's not responding the way it ought to. We can't play basketball like we used to. We can't jump up, up from the floor like we used to. No matter how much we diet, our body shape is not the same as it was even five years ago. We can't seem to think quite straightly. We are forgetful. We will never reach that point of popularity or have the effect in the world that we thought we would. And our career advancement is simply stalled. And our upset regarding our limits, our hurt when we discover limits, signals to us that we are true children of our first parents who were shocked when God's word was true. That God was setting a limit of death as judgment for disobedience. Why death? It is an invader. It is not part of God's original intention. We face the judgment of God, this awful invader called death. But the one thing I know, we were never asked by God to just accept it. Christ didn't, neither should we. He cried at the tomb of a friend. It is Christian to feel pain at the death of a loved one. To watch someone being lowered into the ground with a sense of great inner detachment and peace. It is not the Christian understanding of death to pat someone on the back and say it's going to be okay or give them some other glib slogan, some simple explanation in the face of this enemy, this judgment. Now, many people have not faced up to the fact that death is a judgment, that death is an invader, death is an enemy. As a result, we have reaped in our own bodies the consequences of not dealing properly with death. 
Now, some Christians believe they ought to somehow just skim over death. They ought that it shouldn't affect us very deeply. You know, our own bodies and our own emotions just won't let us skim through the judgment called death. Now, there was a study done by Dr. Linderman who treated people at Massachusetts General Hospital 50 years ago. After a terrible fire that took place in a nightclub called the Coconut Grove in Boston. About 500 people lost their lives in that terrible inferno that took place at this nightclub. And many, many more were treated for terrible burns. They had to undergo painful skin grafts. Dr. Litterman noted that some of the patients who were treated from these burns healed very quickly. And other patients healed very slowly. And in his study, what he discovered was that the people who did not know how to deal with their grief, who attempted to avoid the pain of the loss of a loved one in that fire, who tried to bury their feelings, go through the death of a loved one with some sort of stoic detachment, did not heal. Others who were honest with themselves, who, honest grap- who honestly grappled with the, all the emotion of the loss and the pain and the grief, their skin healed more quickly. Dr. Lindemann also discovered that those who did not grieve well, lost interest in the world, were incapable of loving again, and had strong feelings of anger and hostility, hostility which led to mental illness. The Christian understanding of death starts with death being an enemy. The Christian understanding of death continues with a profound sense of grief in the loss of a loved one. Now let me share with you how an individual feels upon the death of a loved one biblically. Biblically, we have two illustrations from the Old Testament of a parent who loses a child. We have the experience of Jacob who loses a good son, Joseph, or he thinks he lost him to death. And then we also have the experience of David who lost a bad son, a rebellious son named Absalom. Two fathers in the Old Testament both losing a son. One loses a good son, the other loses a bad son. But regardless of whether the son is good or bad, the response of the dad is profound distress and sadness. This is what's recorded about David upon losing a bad son. The king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And when he, as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would to God that I would have died for you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, does it ever puzzle you when you read the newspaper about the grief of a mother or father who lose their children to death row? When you hear the news of the sentence, you may hear them well, my son, my son. Now, some of you may be tempted to say, don't they know what kind of person he was? But it doesn't matter. The Christian understanding of death doesn't weigh the merit of the person whose life has just been snuffed out. It just feels the unnaturalness and the fact that I am now face to face with the ultimate enemy. You ask, what does a person go through who perceives the death of a son, a daughter, or a grandchild? What does a person go through when losing a parent? or a spouse, or a father. One thing that I think the person experiences is a profound sense of neverness. 
that feeling of never being able to see that person again, never hearing that person's voice, never being able to talk, never being able to kiss again, never see him walking down that door, never will I smell their clothing, never will we make love, never will I see them smile, neverness. The other day I went to a funeral of a 19-year-old girl. She used to be part of our youth group. She and her family were returning from their annual Christmas ski vacation from Colorado. It was December 27, 2007. The dad lost control of his SUV. Her seatbelt was not buckled. The car flipped several times. Everyone else in the family walked away with barely a scratch. She was instantaneously killed. Her family, friends, and fiancé grieved at her death. I can't believe I won't see Bethany anymore. She won't ever come back. And Job 14 says, There is hope for a tree if it's cut down, and it will sprout again. But we human beings, when we die, we disappear. We breathe our last. And where are we? And then in Job 7, this neverness is expressed again. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. It is the neverness that is so painful. And any of you who would wish to help somebody who has suffered the loss of a loved one needs to know this, that this is a large part of what they're feeling. This is part of the bad news of dealing with the judgment of God. Another thing that people suffer in death is profound isolation. Grief isolates the sufferer. There's no way for anyone to enter into their grief who has lost a loved one. The one who has suffered loss will often feel detached, alone, like they're walking through a dream. I don't know if you've ever experienced that feeling where you're in another world, in another dimension, walking by yourself. One who has experienced grief or still experiencing grief, will often feel that way. They're surrounded by a group of people, and they'll feel completely disconnected. I remember when my father died. I remember getting on the jet. to fly to California for the funeral. I walked in the airport and people were buying things. They were buying candies, magazines, and coffee. And I couldn't understand why everyone around them didn't feel like I felt. I saw people baggaging their purchases and talking about football games. I even remember the airline stewardess who gave out peanuts and drink talking about her hair and what she was going to do that night. I felt like I was alone in the planet, completely alone in my grief. Now, my daughter was with me, and that helped, but there's still this sense of uh, grief that a person feels when they lose a close one. If you want to help someone who's suffered a loss of a loved one, you must understand that grief isolates. It always makes people feel profoundly alone. I mean, this happened before Priscilla was born she is 16 and still I feel that sadness 
It's essential for others to reach out to a grieving person. They simply cannot reach out to you. Death is always loss. There is someone who is no longer there. How do you explain to a person how many children you have? Do you have two or three? Do you go through a lengthy explanation of the death of your child? Are you married or not married? Well, I'm not a single person. There's a hole, a chair that's no longer going to be filled, a place at the sofa. Where the people used to be, that person used to be, is no longer. The loss is especially profound during holiday seasons. When in contrast to all the fun that's going around you, you have a hole and emptiness. Now why am I going through all of this? I'm attempting to paint a backdrop against which the words of Paul sound absolutely amazing, as they ought to sound. I go through all of this to explain to you that the Christian understanding of death is essential to appreciate the good news of the resurrection. It's against this backdrop that we must read the words of Paul, to die is gain. If the Christian messages start with bad news, dying is lost, dying is isolation, dying is neverness, dying is suffering, the grief of Jacob, the grief of David, the grief of Jesus as he stood by the tomb of Lazarus. The Christian understanding of death also turns the coin and says, and yet, now even death is dying in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, death is destroyed, and all who are attached to Jesus will likewise experience the destruction of death. The judgment that God leveled against our parents is now winding backwards in the other direction. Christians have the good news. Don't just accept death. Don't just avoid discussing death. It is Let's talk truthfully about death and answer this culture's questions with radical honesty. And it is radically honest to say dying is gain. How is that? Dying is gain, not just a catchy phrase to make the world a little nicer, to soften the blows of life. It is not a crutch. Christianity is not a crutch. Christianity is a heart transplant. Christianity is life to a dying man or woman. Dying is gain. What does that mean? This word depart is an interesting one in the Greek. It means to roll up your tents and pack up your bags. Break up camp, everybody. And so when Paul says dying is gain, he means that we gain permanence by dying. That old tent maker himself Everything in this world is impermanent. In 2 Corinthians, he describes our bodies as being a tent, just a temporary place to live in. Now, when the Jewish community would celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacle, God would have them, instructed them to live in tents during this feast. And God wanted them to remember that this life is temporary. It's like a tent. It's a temporary shelter. They are in this world just for a season, or just strangers passing by. When a person dies, they gain permanence. They gain a lasting home. You know, another way for me to put it is this way. When a person dies, they gain substance. Now, this is radically different than what most people view of death in heaven. You know, most people view of death is that people lose substance. 
They become wispy, see-through things, playing wispy, see-through harps and floating in wispy, see-through places with a wispy, see-through God. They believe this world has substance. This world is tangible. But their bodies in the heaven will be see-through, will be like nothing. The old view of heaven is rooted in Greek thought. But the Jewish mindset in both the Old Testament and the New Testament says, you don't lose substance, you gain it. Heaven is more permanent, is more substantive, it is more full, it is more tangible than anything we've experienced here in this life. And when a Christian dies, their spirit is separated from their body, and they immediately go into the presence of the Lord. But when Jesus comes back a second time, he will give his followers a resurrected body. We will not be spirits beings forever. We will have bodies. You don't lose reality by dying. You gain it. We gain fulfillment. Paul says dying is gain. One of the things about dying is heaven um, is in heaven a person gains perfect fulfillment. Now our best efforts of imagining heaven are really lame. They're very unworthy thoughts. Because if you have any sense of want or any sense of disappointment in your mind, you don't understand heaven. In heaven, we will have no sense of lack, no sense of disappointment, no sense of lack of fulfillment. Heaven will be perfectly satisfying. And you will gain fulfillment and you will gain forgiveness. Don't you feel like going there? That's the point. (laughs) I don't know. But one of the different things when people die is that often they have regrets. Many regrets regarding about the person who has left them. What they should have said, what they should have done, a kind of person they should have been. I wasted so much time in my relationship with my dad. I should have communicated more love. I should have been so impatient. People think I should have been a better parent, a better wife, a better husband, a better grandchild, a better friend. When we think about heaven, we may think that God's going to forgive us, which he is. But sometimes what's really in our hearts is that we feel like we need to be forgiven by the people who've gone before. And we imagine the first thing we'll do is run to them and say, I'm so sorry. If we did, I believe that person was safe for what? You never did me wrong. And the reason why I believe that is because scripture says that when we see Christ, we will become like him. And God chooses to forgive and forget our sins. Heaven's going to be no regrets, no fear, and no shame. Does anybody have a tissue? I love reading C.S. Lewis' works. Lewis surpasses any person I've ever heard who described heaven. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. It's so profound. And he explains in his book called The Problem with Pain. He's explaining the meaning of a verse in the Revelation about the white stone from the book of Revelation. In Revelation it says this. To him who overcomes, I will give a white stone. And in the stone a new name written which no man knows save he that receives it. And here's how Lewis explains that verse. 
What can be more a man's own than his new name that even in eternity remains a secret between God and him? And what should we take this secrecy to mean? Surely that each of the redeemed shall forever know and praise some one aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature can. Why else were individuals created but that God loving all infinitely should be loved by each differently? And this difference, so far from impairing, floods with meaning the love of all blessed creatures for one another, the communion of the saints. For doubtless, the continually successful yet never completely attempt by each soul to communicate its unique vision to all the others who are among the ends for which the individual was created. In other words, your individuality and uniqueness consists precisely in this that you know something of God and will reflect something about God for eternity that no one else knows in exactly the same way that you do. And you will spend eternity when it says you will be praising God, extolling his deeds for eternity. And you will spend eternity communicating your unique understanding of the love of God to other people. And they will be sharing their unique understanding of the love of God to you. You will not be part of just a mass in heaven. You will be perfectly unique, more unique than you are even now. Dying is gain, the Apostle Paul says, because ultimately in dying you gain God. Why is it better to depart? Certainly not for those who are left behind. But for the person who does go on, Paul says, dying is gain. As nice as life gets, we haven't seen anything yet. As wonderful as it is to walk down the aisle and marry your best friend, as wonderful as it is to hold your own baby or your grandbaby, as fantastic as it is to lead a person to Christ, it is nothing, nothing in comparison to being with Christ, uninterrupted by sickness, shame, pain, hurt, ugliness, loneliness. It is gain, Paul says, because I desire to depart to be with Christ. Dying is gain because ultimately a follower of Christ gains Christ. Yes, Christians have Christ now. We have him by faith. But then we will have him for reals in his entirety with no interruption. We won't need faith then. I wonder what will be the first thing we will see about Christ. Will it be all his wonderful splendor? Will we see his hands and feet and understand the suffering of God? With all our questions be answered when we see his wounds, I wonder if Christ is going to show us his hands like he did Thomas. For all the questions you have about death, for all the losses you experienced in life, for all the doubts that you currently are experiencing, I wonder if Christ is going to do for you and for me what he did for Thomas. You want an answer to your questions? Put your fingers on my wounds. Understand I am with you in death that there is no loss, no pain, no grief that I don't understand. I wonder if we'll finally get it, that not only will be Christ be with us in death, but we will understand for the first time that Christ was with us in life. Such is the Christian understanding of life and death. Christ with us to die is gain. Let's pray.
follow whether we're young or old, we will be touched by death at some point, either death of a loved one or our own. And we thank you, Lord, that we have not an empty hope, but we have a glorious hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that for us to die is to gain. And, Father, I pray that you would give us words to speak to those who are dying that do not know you yet, that we may comfort them, Father, with the truth of what you've done on the cross, what you did at the grave, and what you'll do now in our hearts. And, Father, I just pray for this truth to be deep in us, Lord, that we would not be afraid to share the truth and the hope that you give to us through your Spirit. Amen. Okay, wow, that was emotional. What I want to do now is um, I would like to allow those of you that are grieving to come forward and get some prayer. And those of you that maybe have concerns that maybe you haven't fully grieved for loss of a a loved one to come forward too. Because um, I'd like you to be able to be fully healed and experience more of God's comfort during this time. And then the third group of people I'd like to come up are those of you that have been a little shy about sharing what you believe about Christ as far as the death and the resurrection and the hope to come. That there have been situations where maybe you've had to talk to somebody who's grieving and doesn't understand death, and you were silenced. And the Lord wants to forgive you, but he also wants to empower you. So I'd like those to come up too. So uh, if you need prayer, you please stand up about those things. You can come forward. Okay. Okay, if there's any other needs that you have for healing or for for prayer, then I'd like you to come forward too. We'll have other folks come forward to pray for you and, and um, walk you through that. Bless you.